everyone? All right, we'll be in Isaiah 51 today. If you want to turn in your Bibles there or navigate there. For the past few years, I've taught Scripture at Riverston Primary, and it's pretty easy to tell who's listening. One way you can tell if they're listening is if they're quiet. That's a big one, because a lot of times they are talking and having their own conversations. and It's not often, but there are occasions when I'm the only one speaking, because people are very interested to hear how, how things end. Um, and another way is when they ask questions relating to the subject. So we're talking about something in particular, and they ask a question about that thing. It's like, right on. Uh, body language, that's another one. If they're laying on the ground, facing the other way, they're probably not very engaged. Now, there is that rare case where a kid who doesn't seem like he's paying attention, he actually has been listening. But that's the exception. And when the class is a bit rowdy, the librarian will assert herself on the situation and raise her voice and, um, you know, she'll address disrespectful behavior. And, and in our passage today, God is trying to get the attention of his people. He says, listen up, listen to me. I've got something to say to you. And in this world, there's a lot of voices clamoring for our attention. There's a lot of things we might even be saying to ourselves. But know that God wants to speak to you today. He has a word for you. And I trust that you're more interested in what God has to say than the news or, or what I have to say or what other people say. And I, and I admit that the bar at Scripture is pretty low. I'm pretty happy when the next week someone can tell me one thing about what we talked about. But God, God wants us to actually put into practice the things that he's telling us, not just to be able to repeat verbatim or to convey what we spoke about or what he said to us. Oh, yeah, you said this. But he's like, well, are you heeding me? Are you putting into practice the things that I'm saying to you? God's been faithful in the past. He wants us to remember who he is, what he's done, what he's promised us and to live our lives in light of that, not just be able to tell others about it. The librarian has to raise her voice to get attention, but you know God speaks to us in a small, still voice. He is not going to shout, but he is going to speak to everyone who will hear and obey him. Those are the people that will receive what God has to say. Let's thank him. Father, thank you that you speak to us that you have sent your spirit to fill us, to enable us to walk in your ways, to bring to mind the things that you've said, that we can receive all truth. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is trustworthy, that you are faithful, and that you don't change. You don't say one thing and then go back on it, but you remain the same today, yesterday, forever. Thank you that your word endures and that you have plans for us, and you have things you want to say to us individually today, and may we receive and walk in and apply your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. So are you excited to hear from God? I certainly am. Well, Isaiah 51, verse 1, we start. It says, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. 
For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. God's speaking to the people of Israel, the righteous remnant who would return to the land and rebuild. They had enemies on all sides. The temple lay in ruins. The walls were were rubble. There was no protection offered there. And God says, listen to me. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things you could be worrying about or listening to, but I want you to listen to my voice. And this also could be applied to people during the captivity, the poor who were left in the land. There were very few people who remained in Jerusalem and in Israel while the captivity was happening in Babylon. And they too were wondering what was going on. When they're trying to, maybe they had tried to rebuild something and it just wasn't happening. He's speaking to people who followed righteousness, who sought the Lord, but they were discouraged. So these are people who know God that he's speaking to. And maybe this fits, you fit into this category. You follow righteousness, you seek the Lord, but you are discouraged. You don't seem to be making progress and your strength is failing. And God has a word for you today. He says, listen to me. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Thinking back to Abraham, God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees when he was 75 years old with his wife Sarai, who was barren. She had never had a child. I mean, at 75, you'd think you'd be settled down, but Abraham was moving to the country where the Lord would show him. He didn't know where he was going, but he obeyed God and he went. And though Sarai was barren, God promised to make of Abram a great nation. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. From you, all nations will be blessed. You see those stars? That's like your descendants. They're going to be that numerous. They won't be able to be counted. And yet he's speaking to somebody who doesn't even have a son with Sarah. Sarai, who became Sarah. And God did it. It didn't seem possible. It was definitely improbable. But God does the impossible, doesn't he? And God says, look back to Abraham, remember the promise I made to him, and see how it turned out. For 25 years, yeah, he didn't have a child with Sarah, but eventually he did in my time. I like what Matthew Henry said in his commentary. He says, think how Abraham was called alone and yet was blessed and multiplied. And let that encourage you to be dependent upon the promise of God. They are here assured that their present tears should at length end in joys. So Abraham, his body as good as dead, unable to have children. Sarah, barren, had never had a child. She's 90 years old and she has a child. And from them comes the Jewish nation. So God's promises, they're not just unlikely, improbable, they're impossible, and he does them. He's speaking to families torn by war, mourning the loss of children, the destruction of Jerusalem. They mourned how their life was destroyed by sin. Their land was desolate. They were without defense. The temple lays lie in ruins. There's enemies all around. 
all, all of this reminders of their defeats. Those aren't pleasant to have those constant reminder of your failures and your defeat. And yet God said, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. So where there was sorrow, God promised to bring comfort. The wilderness was going to be fruitful. All the waste places, the places that were deserted and desolate, he was. He says, I'm going to make that like the Garden of Eden for fruitfulness. It doesn't look possible. It doesn't seem like it could happen, but I am going to do it. Instead of weeping, there is going to be joy and gladness. There is going to be singing. We all want comfort. I know I do. And we want our lives to be fruitful. We want to be glad in the Lord and to delight in Him. And there ours if we'll look to God, follow after righteousness, and in faith believe the things he's promised us. But sometimes we don't enter in. We can be quite overwhelmed with the wilderness, with the obstacles and the impossibilities. There were days in Israel so dark that they wondered if they would ever be joyful again. If they could really sing and mean it, praise to the Lord, because of the things that they had suffered. They suffered greatly Yet every day, to this day, we know that songs of praise are being lifted up to God. Think about how God has restored many Jews to the land of Israel. And that there's pilgrims from all over the world that go and devout Jews and Christians, they sing to God praises today in that place that was wrecked and ruined by the results of their sin and the rebellion against God. And they were desolate. But look, God's done a reversal. He's transformed the situation. And we know that he is going to, again, bring a complete reversal when Jesus sets up his kingdom there. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And so the question is, do I believe God? Do I believe his promise to me? That where I see barrenness and wasteland, he can make me fruitful and rejoice in him. He turns those wildernesses into oasis our grief into joy. So, verse 4, Listen to me, again, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. God says, listen up, again. He's going to keep saying this. Give ear to me. Listen. I'm the lawgiver. I'm the judge. I'm the one who upholds justice. You see injustice in the world and you mourn over it? I'm the one who is just. I will uphold it. He says that his righteousness is near. Now, righteousness is holiness, purity. It's really perfect agreement with God. Because God is righteous. And we're righteous when we're in agreement with him when we walk in the way that pleases him. And so he says, my righteousness is near. I've brought it near to you. Psalm 119, 105, it speaks of how God's word illuminates, that his word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. 
God spoke of a Messiah who would be the light of the world. He's the one who God has made a light to the Gentiles. We read about in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says Jesus is made to be righteousness for us. So we know through Christ we see this fulfilled. God's righteousness has come near to us, and we can receive him through faith. Not one of us is righteous according to the law of Moses. We've never lived in perfect agreement with the righteousness of the law, but through faith we are made righteous by God's grace. His salvation has gone out to the ends of the earth. All who repent and return to Christ can be saved. Jesus said, um, a similar thing, what we read in Isaiah 45:22, where the prophet says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So no matter where you are on the planet, God has salvation for you in Jesus Christ. A nation like, Jeru- a, a nation like Israel, where Jerusalem was doomed to destruction because of sin, there was still hope for individuals who placed their faith in him. He would preserve them if they were obedient to him. And he delighted in them. So righteousness, salvation, you see how they're connected in this passage? They go together. There's no salvation without righteousness. And it's through Christ that we are made righteous through faith. If you could please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 6. I want to read a little portion of Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. Hannah was a woman who was barren. She was without children and... Uh, her husband had two, another wife who would always uh, just hold it over her head, the fact that she didn't have kids, and it grieved her. She, she didn't even want to eat because of the torment and just feeling ashamed, and um, the, the pain was intense. But she had prayed to the Lord that she would bear a son, and she said, Lord, I promise to give this child to you. And Eli, he thought she was drunk. There's some discernment from the high priest. Uh, He's like, oh, man, this lady, put away your wine. What are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm not drunk. I'm just, I I have grief in my soul. I'm pouring out my heart to God. Oh, okay, that's cool. And uh, yeah, may the Lord grant you your request. And so God did. God honored that, and she gave birth to a son, Samuel, and many children we read besides. But here's this barren woman. She's grieving, she's fruitless, and yet after she pours out her heart to God, God hears her and he supplies that need. He's able to do complete reversals, and that's what I want to bring out in this passage, how God takes someone out of darkness and he brings them into light. God takes someone who's barren and he makes them fruitful. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's what our God does. He kills and he makes alive. 
He makes poor and rich. He brings low and lifts up. He's able to do these transformations that we think, oh, well, a product of their environment. They, they really, they're beyond hope. But with God, there is always hope for life where there was death before. Hollywood's popularized the rags to riches tale that we, we enjoy. But, but God really goes beyond that. He takes dead and he brings to life. It reminded me of that, the Holy Grail Monty Python film where the guy shouts, like, bring out your dead, right? And he shouts, bring out your dead, because people who had died during the night, he was going to haul them away for a ninepence, right? Now, God doesn't just say, bring out your dead so I can haul them away. He says, I want to make the dead live again. Totally different. That's a transformation. That's something only God can do. He can bring the dead and he can make them alive. Not just in this life, but for eternity, where he wants to be with us forever. Those who are doomed to destruction in hell, he says, I want to give you a place in heaven with me forever. Again, a complete reversal by his grace. So there's injustice in the world. There's things we grieve and mourn over. But we can trust God's arm to judge that he knows what's happening and he is able to see it he is able to speak, he's able to act, and we can trust him. Those who do good and suffer for it, they have an advocate with Jesus Christ. When it speaks of his arm, it speaks of his power, and there's no one who can restrain him or stop him. He can uphold all who come to him in faith. Back to Isaiah 51, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will not be abolished. So those who sought him, God said, take your eyes off of your problems. Look at the expanse of heaven. Think about the earth that I've made. The heavens and earth from our perspective, seems unchanging. Like the sun is going to rise every day and the earth is going to be solid beneath our feet. We're not going to open the front door and there will just be nothing or we could just fall into space. Like, of course not. We figure it's just going to be here. But he says the sun and the moon and the world, the things you think are so stable and solid, they're going to be dissolved someday. It's all going to end. The heavens are going to vanish like smoke the earth is going to grow old like clothes, threadbare. A time will come when it will be finished. All the mighty men and women of the earth, there'll be no more. Now, knowing a difficult situation is going to end, that can give us some comfort, right? I think of Colonel Kilgore, where he said, someday this war is going to end. He drew strength from the fact that the war was going to last. It wasn't going to last forever. He's like, it's a terrible thing, but it's going to be over someday. And I want to encourage you guys, the trials that you're facing, the uncertainty in your life, that's not going to last forever. Because everything in this world, the trials of this world, the pain associated with this world, the mourning that we endure as followers of Christ, and we see the wickedness that's prevalent, that is going to end someday. We can, we can draw some comfort from that. 
But the peace comes, not in just knowing someday it's going to be over, but know that God is bringing salvation that will last forever. That's where the real comfort comes. Not just like, well, this is going to end someday. The world has that. Uh, people in the world have that comfort, but we have a greater comfort because our God, there is salvation with him. There is hope with him for eternity. God's righteousness that he is giving us, it's going to endure forever. We get to be with him. Peter spoke of the ultimate judgment of the earth by God. He spoke of how the heavens, the earth, everything in them will be dissolved. And he talked about how this should impact our lives. So just knowing that is one thing, but we need to apply that truth. So if you want to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, we'll go to 15, the first part of 15. We'll see the connection he makes. Because my connection might be, well, since it's all going to end, it really doesn't matter, and I don't need to care about it. I don't need to make much of an effort to do anything for God because, hey, it's all going to end. Why should I invest my time or energy in pushing against you know, a block wall? Why should I fight against the obstacles? Why should I seek to overcome anything? Because it's all going to end, and it really doesn't matter. That's not the conclusion that Peter comes to in 2 Peter 3, verse 11. He says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. When we see ungodliness and unholy conduct, that concerns us. But he says, what manner of persons ought you to be? We should consider how I should live. We can complain about the... Uh, ungodliness in the world, but am I ungodly in the way that I conduct myself, in the way that I speak? It's not the destruction of the world that we should look forward to. Yeah, it's all going to burn, and I'm looking forward to it. No, he's saying, looking for that new heaven, that new earth, where righteousness dwells. Look forward to that. The destruction of this earth is just a step before that. We're not to to delight in destruction. God does not... It, he has no delight in the destruction of the wicked. He says, do I, do I take, am I happy when people die? No, I want to see people turn and live. That's why Jesus came to suffer, so that people could live for eternity. So knowing current pain will end is one thing, but believing a day comes when your pain and suffering will not be remembered nor come into mind, you can lay hold of that one. Rejoice in that. And that last bit, It says, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Think about how long-suffering God is and that you are the beneficiary of that. If God had not been long-suffering, there would be no salvation for you. He'd have wrapped up this whole thing. But he is patient. He is willing to suffer because in his long-suffering, there is salvation for other people. And as your life continues and you seek to follow after righteousness, and you seek the Lord, you will suffer. 
However, in long-suffering, there is salvation because God wants other people to come to Christ and he wants to use us to bring them into his kingdom. Jesus endured the agony of the cross to save lives, not to destroy them. If God hadn't been gracious and long-suffering towards me, there'd be no chance for my salvation. Shouldn't we extend that towards other people as well so they too can know Jesus Christ, be born again, and trust in him? Isaiah 40, excuse me, 51, verse 7. He's repeating himself. He wants us to listen. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. So now he says, don't fear men or their insults. You think about being a child of God. Isn't it a bit absurd that we would fear men? That we'd fear what man can do to us when we have a God who loves us and who has called us and who will protect us and who has provided everything for us? The judge of all the earth and we're on his good side because we've been deemed righteous by his grace through faith. God said that men are destroyed as easily as clothes in a closet by moths. Like if you had the, the battle between the, the moth horde and the garments hanging in the closet, who's going to win that fight? The moths are going to win. And I've never been intimidated by a moth. I don't know about you, but moths don't intimidate me. They can't bite me. They may just make a little dust if you, you smack them or something. You're like, hey, get away. Like, you're not really worried about the moths. And he says, the moths will eat up. Guys will, like men, they're that feeble. They're just eaten up like a garment, like a moth. They provide no resistance at all. They have no power before me. The more we fear and acknowledge God, the less fear we have of man and their judgments and their censure. He says this because the fear of man is prevalent. It is prevalent even in those who fear God because we're afraid of what other people think. We're afraid of what they might do if they knew what we believed. We're afraid of being overlooked for a promotion. We're afraid of being hated. We can be afraid of losing business or offending family members or being attacked because of our faith. There's many things that we fear. Most of these fears, if we'll admit it, they're unfounded even in themselves. Like we have fears that are irrational. It's not in reality. We, we have a fear and we're like, I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm still afraid of this thing. What does the Bible say? Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 4, 17 through 19. I read recently that fear carries with it a kind of torment that is its own punishment. So fear by itself, if we give place to fear, 
we're giving place to a kind of torment in our lives that we need not give place to. And if we give place to fear, we give place to the devil. And he will run with that. 1 John 4, verse 17 through 19. It says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Love has been perfected in us. We have been made complete in Christ's love. If we have been made complete in his love, then we won't fear torment. Perfect love, it says, casts out fear. So if we have those fears, there are depths of God's love that we still need to reach. We need to accept and walk in. The fact that we love others is evidence that we love God. The Bible says, if I say I love God and I don't love my brother whom I have seen, then how can I say that? I'm a liar. So I, if I love people, that's not, I'm, it's beyond emotion. It's a choice that we make to love others. And if we make that choice, that's evident that we, we love God. If we don't love people, we don't love God. It's that simple. And if we're afraid, we have not been yet made perfect in God's love. Isaiah 51, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now this is the ready response of a believer to God's voice. The one who believes says, okay, God, you said it, now do it. And stirs God to action. It's not that God's sleeping, right? We know that God does not slumber or sleep. It says that in Psalm 121, 2 through 4. It says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So he's saying, in saying, awake to God, he's saying, God, I want to stir you up. Do the thing that you've said you would do. I believe you. I trust you. And I'm asking you to do it now. And what does he remember? He remembers God's miraculous deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. Rahab is often an epithet of Egypt, even as Jerusalem at times is called spiritual Sodom. So he's saying, you're the one who defeated Egypt. You're the one who cast, who tore apart that serpent. Now, Rahab, it means boaster. And think of all the times Pharaoh boasted against God. He said, I will not let them go. The serpent in the Egyptian culture, uh, it's a sign of sovereignty, royalty, divinity, and divine authority. And if you remember the death mask of King Tut, it's got the vulture on one side and the serpent on the other, the cobra. And so God is the one who would destroy that serpent. 
he would defeat him. And we can also apply it to Satan as well. Because when there's the oppression and the hatred of God's people, the devil's certainly involved in that. So he's the one who cut Rahab apart, who wounded the serpent, who delivered his people without a fight through the Red Sea. He made a way through the depths for them to pass safely over. So it's that deep place, that place that was dark and foreboding, that he made a way through to the other side. They weren't to set up camp down there. They were to pass through, led by his presence, and to be led into safety. Think of that. He made the depths a road for his redeemed. When he takes you through the depths, it's because he has something to bring you to. But we can be focused on the depths that we're in. When he says, look forward to my righteousness, seek me, I'm going to bring you through. If God can do that, if God can bring, be faithful to Abraham, cause him to have a child in his old age, if he can cause the children of Israel, after toiling in the brick kilns for hundreds of years, to come out as a nation, without a fight, slaves released who had plundered their enemies and to bring them into the promised land. Is there anything too hard for God? Certainly not. God fought for his people. Even when the pharaohs in- Pharaoh increased their quotas, uh, sentenced their children to death, and the taskmasters worked them to exhaustion. While all that's going on, God is in the process of saving them and delivering them. Pretty awesome. God's people now, fast forward many years, now they've gone into Babylon. They're in captivity. And they're wondering, how could we ever be joyful again? How could God bring us out of this mess? You know, Jerusalem's a mess. It's destroyed. All hope is lost. I don't think I'll ever sing again. Tears are my bread night and day. Mourning and grief are weighing me down. There is no hope for me. I can't change my situation. But listen to what God said to his people. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We often want the sorrow and sighing to flee away before we'll rejoice in the Lord. But notice the order here. It says, they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So we choose to rejoice in God, even in the difficult times. And then the sorrow, the sighing, just the, that's going to flee away. I love that Warren Wearsby, a quote in the last message we listened to, In our discipleship course, he says, we Christians, we don't live on explanations. We live by God's promises. We don't live by explanations. God didn't tell people, his people exactly how he would bring them out of Babylon or what, um, he was going to do to remove the sorrow inside. Like, I feel so bad. How are you going to change this, God? He's like, well, let me explain it to you. He never did. He never explained it to them. He just told them what he was going to do, and it was for them to believe it or not, to enter into his promise or not. And so he's saying, listen up. Please listen to me. You're going to return with everlasting joy. Sorrow and sighing is going to flee away. You may not see how, but trust me. Look at what I did for Abraham. Look at what I did in Egypt. 
I'm going to do the same thing for you. And he tells us the same thing today. If sorrow and sighing have been our food and drink, no. There is righteousness in him for us, and there is deliverance and eternal joy for us. We don't, I, I can't explain to you how God transforms a life. I can't explain to you how he makes a huge reversal from depression to rejoicing. I don't know how he does that, but I know he does because he's promised to. Like, I don't know how Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. That's something the Pharisees were very keen to know. How did he do it? How did he open your eyes? I don't know, said the blind man. All I know is I was once blind, and now I see. The power of God, it answered it for me in my experience. I don't have to explain it to you. I'm telling you all I know, and I know that God did it. I know that Jesus does it. God will turn your sorrow into joy when you seek after righteousness and follow him. And it's not because we earn that. It's because he's given us a promise and we can walk in the light of it. Isaiah 51, 12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor whom he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? God offers comfort to his people, even the people who weren't listening very well. He kept having to tell them, hey, listen up, listen to me, hearken to me. God is the God of all comfort, and he offered them comfort. If we will not receive comfort from God, where is it going to come from? If he's the source of all comfort, the God of all comfort, Where is there comfort for you if you don't find it in Jesus Christ? It's not that God cannot comfort us. Sometimes we refuse his comfort. Do you believe that's possible? That we could refuse the comfort of God? We are that stubborn that he offers us comfort, real comfort, genuine, lasting joy, and we just go, can't even think about that right now. I've got problems. (laughs) got issues. The powerful arm that destroys God's enemies, it's the same arm that gently guides and protects us and provides for us. If you could turn to Psalm 77, we read of the, I think it's Asaph, Psalm 77, and he's he's in trouble. He's crying out to God, and we'll see his conclusion. And I love that about the Psalms. There's a real depth of feeling and hurting that you you realize these these people who feared God went through just like us where we have doubting times and painful times and hurting times and questioning times and God yet reveals himself he answers it with himself and what he has done Psalm 77 verse 1 I cried out to God with my voice to God with my voice and he gave ear to me in the day of my trouble I sought the Lord my hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. Now you might think if you cry out to God and you know that he hears you, you could be happy. You could receive some comfort in that. But Asaph did not. 
He says, I cried out to God, to God, he gave ear to me. So I have a connection with God. He's hearing me. I sought the Lord. My hand is stretched out to God. So he's like in bed and he's just reaching out to God. He said, God, help me. And then it says, my soul refused to be comforted. But, but this is the reality here. We go, oh, that doesn't make sense. That's ridiculous. Well, we can be ridiculous, yes, but this is reality. This is, this is the Christian life. We can struggle in trying to follow Jesus. We struggle as God is breaking off the hard edges on our hearts and he's, he's making us new and teaching us his ways. So Asaph, he's refusing to be comforted. He, he wants to be comforted, but he's just not able to receive it. He was troubled. He's complaining. He's overwhelmed. All right, these are the descriptions from the passage. Now see the thoughts that bring him out of his funk in verses 15 through 20 as he remembers what God did in Egypt. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I'm sure the people were frightened beyond belief as the Egyptians are coming down upon them with their chariots. And then, you know, the pictures of Moses standing there, they don't quite capture this for me, where he's standing there and everyone's just orderly walking through the Red Sea. What does it say? It's saying the depths were afraid. They're troubling. They're troubled. It's saying the skies sent out a sound, arrows. So we've got thunder. We've got lightning. The earth is shaking. And God's like, this is the way for you. Through the depths. The way that I've opened up. Go. That's, that's your salvation. Well, do you trust God to go through the depths? Do you trust that when the earth is shaking and the lightning is, is, uh, scattering everywhere and the thunder is booming and you can feel it and he says keep going i've got something for you on the other side i'm going to bring you through you led your people like a flock by the hand of moses and aaron see god will lead you he will provide for you all you need you you put this together with psalm 23 and you think about the shepherd how he's leading them beside still waters And we like to be there, right? We don't want to be in the trembling depths and the lightning and the thunder and all this uncertainty, but realize that when you're guided by the hand of God, you're just as safe down there as you are in the serene valley or the the nice tabletop plateau with the, the vista and the water that's, you know, the bubbling brook, the, the picturesque scene. This is the picture, this is the picture that Asaph looked at and he drew comfort from it. And he said, God, you brought us out and you brought us in and you were with us the whole time. You didn't leave us, you didn't forsake us. I can live with that. So this is what he was thinking about. To bring him out of that place of complaining and hurting. 
So considering God who has redeemed us, how can we be afraid of men? And it says, verse 13, we fear man because we forget the Lord our maker. We forget about him. He's saying, you've been afraid every day. You've had fear in your heart of the oppressor every day. And where is the oppressor? Where is the fury of the oppressor? Like, you've been afraid of something that hasn't materialized. Won't you fear me? Won't you remember me? Don't forget me. Such a good word for us. Because God's people were so entrenched in worries and cares and preoccupied with things they couldn't change. They did not believe God's promises. They forgot about the God who created them and they refused to be comforted. That is like a triple whammy. That's a pretty bad situation to be in. But God doesn't want us to stay there. He wants to bring us out. I asked the Lord for a picture, and this is what he gave me. We're we're like that child who's lost sight of mom or dad in the shops, and we just lose it, right? Just crying, panicking, kind of running around. Not We don't know where to go. We don't know what's happening. We're very overwhelmed in the situation. And so he comes. He's seen us the whole time. He sees us panicking. He sees us worrying. He sees the tears starting to flow and we like don't know who to talk to and everyone looks like a stranger and it's not safe. And then he comes and he says, hey, I've got you. And he picks us up and he holds us close and we still refuse to be comforted because we stopped seeing him for a while. We lost sight of him and so we're angry at him. When he's holding us and he's protecting us and he's saying sweet things to us and we're a bit resentful, that, that he went out of eyesight for a few minutes. That's the picture that I have. He was there all along. He's the one who came to us. He's the one who seeks us out, right? Jesus will go and leave all the, the 99 to go after the one who's lost because he wants us to be with him. He wants to make sure that we're safe. He's not going to let you go. He's going to hold you. He's going to protect you. Find strength in his upholding love. Find strength in the fact that he comes to you and he says to you today, listen to me. Why should you be afraid of a man? Don't forget your maker, the one who loves you. Isaiah 51, 14 through 16. The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. He's speaking of people in Babylon who were nervous about being in captivity in Babylon. They were worried that their food supplies were going to run out. It's quite ironic, actually, because they were in going into captivity delivered from the famine that was going on in Jerusalem that was killing people. So when they were in Jerusalem, there was a famine. There was pestilence. People were dying. And God brings them out of that place. He uses the Babylonians to break all their idols, and he brings them into captivity. And yet it says the exile, he's looking for an escape. He's just trying to get out of it. It says, the exile hastens. He's like, I I want to get out of this place. And that's where God had them for 70 years. They were so focused on breaking the yoke of Babylon, 
they ceased trusting God who had redeemed them and would deliver them in His time. Can't you hear the tone of Christ in these words in Luke 12, 28, where He says, If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? God's going to take care of your food. He's going to take care of your necessities. You are safe with Him. Verse 15, But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is His name. When the God who created you has power over all this present world, who's redeemed you for eternity, if He's looking out for you, what do you have to be afraid of? And verse 16, that's really the passage that God directed me to for application. He says, And I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, You are my people. So God has given to us the words of life. He's given us the gospel. He's protected us. He's covered us with the shadow of his hand. He's filled us with the comforter, the Holy Spirit who teaches us all things that Jesus says, no matter if there's enemies around us, if our future seems bleak, our financial situation is uh, bad uh, and uncertain, know that he has us and that he has included us in his future plans. Did you notice that? He says, with a mighty army delivered us, with his hand he sheltered us, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. God wants to use you to establish his kingdom in the lives of other people. He wants to use you to speak his love and his truth and our need to repent and be born again to everyone. He wants to establish something through you. And that kingdom needs to be established in your heart before you can share that truth with other people. So we must be born again and then be willing to Speak of our great God and the things he's done. We can't be useful in this way when we're filled with unbelief or uh, worries or self-focus. If you're included in God's eternal plans, then it stands to reason that he's ordained good things for you to do for him today, too. If he's saying, I want to use you for eternity, well, for us, eternity has begun. God has something for you to do, and he's going to help you do it. It's going to be him doing it. So, uh, to close, can we turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14? There's this really great exhortation. Because Nehemiah, again, looking beyond the Isaiah passage, Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. The temple had been rebuilt, but the walls had not been built for quite some time. And so he came back to help with that building project. And while he's doing it, it says that the people of the land, they were conspiring against them. They hated them. They hated the Jews. And they hated the fact that they were coming back to the land. So there's all this opposition and intrigue, right? It's a great passage uh, to read through on your own time. Read Nehemiah. Uh, but the people in the land, they were angry, and they didn't want God's work to happen. I think we have such opposition in the world today, don't we? So Nehemiah 4, verse 14. 
Nehemiah says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Everyone there had something to do. And he said, don't be afraid of them. Remember, we have an awesome, great God. Later, when the enemies tried to make Nehemiah afraid, in Nehemiah 6, 9, it says, For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. God will strengthen our hands. He, he taught David's fingers to fight battles. And we don't need to give any place to the devil. We can refuse fear through Christ's authority. The love of God casts out all fear. And we discover strength and love when we consider all God, who he is, all he's done, Abraham, children of Israel, bringing them back from Babylon, restoring Jerusalem to them, and also what God's done for you. Because I, I know that if you're in Christ, he's brought you through some things. And you've experienced his delivering hand. And he has saved you from sin. And he has helped you. And he has opened your eyes. And he's brought you from the darkness into the light. From death to life. You have a testimony too. Remember what God has done for you. Remember the things he's called you to. And don't stop short of doing that work. Because it's he who will do it. And we can trust him. So, will you admit today if you are afraid, and repent. You say, Lord, is there fear in my life? Have I given a place to fear? Fear of anything. And will you confess your, your fear as sin before God so he can make you as bold as a lion? And repent. Renounce that fear. Because God wants to do a work in you today so he can do a work through you as we discover his strength through his love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your power, your grace, for just these demonstrations of reversals in this world, Lord. You've, you've taken slaves and you've set them free. People that were dead, they were raised to life. Barren wombs gave birth to many. Uh, people who were unable to have children, great nations have come from them. Lord, we, we delight in you and thank you that you are trustworthy, you are awesome, you are a great God who has made us, who holds us in your arms, who bids us to trust you and to look to you and be saved. And I pray, Lord, if there is fear in our hearts, you would free us from that curse, that you would cause us to delight in you, not to be afraid of men, not to be afraid of the future, but your perfect love would cast out all fear so that we can love you with our whole hearts and walk in the way that fully pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen.